Welcome to the CSB SCB podcast, part of the Canadian Society for Biomechanics. We are your hosts and student representatives, Jackie Zare and Francie Onet. Welcome to episode 14 of the CSB SCB podcast. With us today is Dr. Yusha Kuganti. Dr. Kuganti is a professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology at the University of New Brunswick. She's also a registered professional engineer, a member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, and in 2009, she was named a Fellow of Engineers Canada. Dr. Kuganti received her bachelor's and master's degrees in electrical engineering from the University of New Brunswick, as well as her PhD in human factors engineering. Dr. Kuganti also served as the Assistant Dean of Graduate Studies and Research in the Faculty of Kinesiology. And she's the co-founder and co-director of the Andrew and Marjorie McCain Human Performance Lab at UNB. So Dr. Kuganti, welcome and thanks so much for chatting with us today. Thanks for having me. In our last episode, we spoke with Dr. Clark Dickerson and he said something interesting that I hadn't really thought about before in that way. He said that with both engineering and kinesiology, we try to make people's lives better, but that engineers tend to try to change or adapt the environment while kinesiologists try to adapt the human and their behavior. And with that, that background, it seemed like a cool coincidence that, to see that you completed your doctoral degree in human factors engineering. And so our first two questions for you are, what is human factors engineering? And can you give us a practical example of what a human factors engineer might work on? Sure. Human factors engineering by the definition would be looking at applying information about human behavior, human abilities, limitations, other types of characteristics to the design of tools, machines, systems, and things like that. I always look at human factors engineering as almost like the umbrella term, including things like ergonomics. In terms of engineering, I think that engineers are very, very good generally at design and understanding the machines behind different types of tools. But when you take it to the level of human factors engineering, you start to include that human component. So who is actually going to use that tool or that assistive device? So what I did for my PhD was an interdisciplinary PhD. So my early background is in electrical engineering from my first two degrees, my undergraduate, my master's. And I did it kind of in the area of biomedical engineering, but it was very much on the engineering side. I looked at the myoelectric control system for a prosthetic arm. I worked for several years and went back to university and I wanted to continue to be in that kind of area, but I knew that I didn't want to do a strictly electrical engineering degree. I wanted to do something that involved other disciplines. So I did an interdisciplinary PhD through the faculties of kinesiology and engineering. I was not a kinesiologist. I did not have a physiology course. I did not have an anatomy course. So I had to ensure that I learned that kind of material. But I, I really enjoyed where I ended up because I felt like as a human factors engineer, I was able to draw those disciplines together. So taking kind of the background in electrical engineering principles, design development, and then applying it to a human problem. So that's how I ended up with a degree in human factors engineering. We also read that this discipline, human factors engineering, is also known as engineering psychology. And mm -hmm. we were curious where the psychological component comes in there. That's a really good question. And something that I often tell my students is that the one thing I've learned about human factors engineering is that it's very broad. 
And you can study it from so many different disciplines. You can study it from engineering, you can study it from kinesiology, and you can study it from psychology and cognitive psychology because it's such a, a key component. If you're going to build something for somebody, you need to not only understand their physiological limitations, the anthropomorphic differences that we might have between individuals, but you also need to understand what else is going on with that person as they're using a device. It could be things like cognitive workload. Do you stress the body as you're trying to use a, an assisted device, for example? And I think the psychology component is really critical. It's certainly not my area of expertise. However, I know that the whole field of, for example, cognitive ergonomics has really taken off. And there's now a very strong understanding that it's an interdisciplinary field. We need to think about not only the engineering principles behind it, but how human behavior impacts what you're working on. And I think that's where the psychology component comes into. So then it was your PhD that got you from engineering over to the kinesiology faculty. Yes. So we, you may be aware of this, but maybe you're not. It might be an interesting tidbit about the history of biomechanics in Canada for you too, that something that you have in common with David Winter is that He also held both an undergrad and a master's degree in electrical engineering. And in our work as biomechanists, we make use of electrical engineering principles and skills more often than we probably realize, like thinking about data acquisition and processing. Can you give us a few specific examples when we use what you're trained in, really? <laughs> well, I actually did not know that fact. I knew that David Winter was an engineer, but I didn't realize he was an electrical engineer. So thank you for sharing that little tidbit with me. I think that one of the things I took away from particularly my undergraduate degree is that engineering programs teach you to solve problems. I think that was the big message that I got. So that even when there were sometimes problems I didn't know how to solve, I at least learned how to break them down to digestible chunks. So I knew what kinds of things I could follow through with, where I might need a little bit of help. And I really feel like for me personally, my undergrad training helped prepare me for a lot of different things, work in industry for certain, but also in research and graduate school and then my academic career. I always say to my graduate students, I really like solving interesting problems. It doesn't necessarily mean that I have all of the tools available to help solve the problem. But if it's interesting, I'm more than happy to go out and learn what others have to say to help to solve that problem. You know, you learn those skills in engineering programs. And when I went to school <laughs> a long time ago, we had to take courses in all kinds of different fields. So it wasn't that you just took, you know, electrical engineering courses in circuit analysis or power systems. We still had to take thermofluids. We took a chemical engineering course, all kinds of different things. And I think that that really helps as you go through and try to solve different kinds of problems. So when I was doing my master's, my project was part of a, a much bigger project. I did a small piece of it, looking at multifunction control of a prosthetic device. And I took the skills that I gained through engineering to look at acquiring signals, trying to process them, using them as a control input to operate an artificial arm. But I think On top of that, I also learned that there was lots of things that I didn't necessarily know how to do and that I needed to reach out to the experts and I needed to look at the problem from a number of different vantage points to realize that it's important to reach out to the experts in other fields and learn from other people. And I think that's a skill that you get from a lot of engineering programs across the country. So among other things... You are an expert in neuromuscular physiology and electromyography, or EMG, which is the 
main topic for today, and you already talked about it a little bit. So many people are aware that EMG is about muscle, and we typically just simply say that we're measuring muscle activity, which is maybe not the most precise definition, though. So what exactly is it that we measure or record with EMG, and how do we do that? Also a good question. <laughs> There's lots of steps involved. I think one of the most interesting things about muscle and why I've studied it for so long is that it is adaptable, it is irritable, it has contractile properties. And when the muscle does contract, there are a number of different physiological processes that happen, including what's called the depolarization, repolarization of the muscle membrane. And that results in this electrical activity. As we think about making a movement, and we do this every day without even two minutes thinking about it, and all of these movements happen so quickly. We have a thought that we want to make a particular movement. It originates in the brain, and then there's a series of what I like to call the information highway that's going back and forth with different neurons to the muscle. Different chemical processes occur, the electrical processes occur, and we release action potentials, which then contribute to muscle activity. So we can record this with electrodes. We can use indwelling electrodes that use a needle or a wire that go through the surface of the skin, or we can use surface electrodes on top of the skin. The very interesting thing is that with all of these muscle contractions, the ability to record this electrical activity has led to many, many researchers being able to decipher the signal, which looks like a bunch of noise when you record it, um, to take different parameters and features of that signal and then interpret activity of that muscle. So yes, we are looking at muscle activity, but we're looking at so much more. We're looking at things like, is this muscle turned on or turned off? If you have a clinical population where perhaps you've had somebody who's had several surgeries where the muscles have been cut and moved, and that happens quite commonly in a number of different neuromuscular disorders, has that changed the amount of activity that the muscle can produce? If you have somebody who's older, who might be a little bit unstable, they, they might not fire their muscles in the same pattern they did when they were 20 years old, the same way as they did when they're nine years old. So the EMG could help us to look at those kinds of patterns of behavior between pairs of muscles. EMG recordings can be used to look at estimates of force. It's not a one-to-one -one relationship between the EMG signal and force output, but it certainly gives us an indication of the amplitude. And there's many other features that we can use to look at things like fatigue, co-contraction, different kinds of stabilization patterns. There's so much information in that signal that really we've been able to harness it in a variety of manners from things like physical therapy to look at what are typical patterns in individuals and comparing them with clinical groups. We know that muscle is trainable. We can see these differences occurring in the EMG patterns with the training. So that allows us to, to look at protocols in a different way, try to make them as appropriate as possible. Um, and then we can use them to control things like prosthetic devices. What are some of the problems and limitations of EMG recording? Because we know... Like, That sounds like we can use them for so many things and we can read a lot out from it. But I think what are some things that maybe we can see or that we need to take into consideration when we record those signals? There are definitely some limitations. My primary research is using surface EMG. I have done a little bit of indwelling electrodes. I always say to students that you have to make sure that whatever you're going to use to test others, you better test on yourself. So I've both been a participant for a study using wire EMG, and I've also done it myself. It's really not so bad. I think it's, it's scarier than people think it is. Some of the limitations with surface EMG is that 
you can have some difficulty recording the muscle depending on which muscle you're looking at. If it's a particularly deep muscle, a small muscle, actually getting a good recording can be challenging. You have to think about how far that signal has to travel. The EMG signal is small. It can be 0.01 to 5 millivolts. So it's just a tiny little signal. And you think about all the layers that it has to travel through inside the body so that you can actually record it. Sometimes it can be difficult to determine exactly which muscle you're recording the activity from. So it's really important if you think of a muscle like the quadricep muscle. It's not just one muscle, right? There's the vastus lateralis, the medialis, the rectus femoris. So you really want to think about you know, where you're trying to locate your electrodes. You can improve your recordings considerably by using standardized protocols. And there are lots of well-published guidelines on how to use EMG appropriately. So things like ensuring that there's a good contact between the skin and the electrode. So preparing the skin site, making sure you have good conductance, um, reducing the skin resistance. There are different electrode configurations. There's a monopolar configuration and a bipolar configuration. A monopolar configuration uses one electrode, one ground, and it basically gets every signal in the vicinity, including those that you don't necessarily want. A bipolar configuration uses two electrodes and it uses a differential amplifier to reduce that noise. And so most of us use bipolar electrode configurations. Having said that, there's lots of reasons people might use a monopolar configuration, particularly if you're looking at multi-channel EMG recordings. When you place the electrode, it's really important to consider what muscle you're looking at. And every muscle has muscle fibers and they all have their own pattern. They might, you know, be fan-shaped. They might all lie very tubular-like. So it's really important that when you do place electrodes over that muscle belly, you find the muscle belly and you place those electrodes in line with the muscle fibers and you want to make sure that that contact is as clean as possible. If you're using bipolar electrodes, you use an appropriate separation. So those are all things that you can do to try to make sure that you have the best possible signal. The thing that is challenging with surface EMG is that you're placing electrodes over the skin and you're getting whatever activity is produced. When you use an indwelling electrode, you are actually able to go through the skin and you can see these motor unit action potentials as they fire, as your brain is making the decision to move that muscle. If you want to actually look at something like motor unit recruitment, um, changes to the action potential, you have to use indwelling electrodes. Having said that, there's been a lot of work in the last decade, decade and a half, in using multi-channel EMG recordings. So a number of researchers have developed systems where you would use numerous monopolar electrodes over a muscle, upwards of 64, maybe 128. I looked at some research recently where a researcher used up to 300 electrodes over a muscle. And what you can do with that is you can then create these maps, these spatial maps. And that kind of surface high-density or multi-channel EMG recordings is getting us closer to being able to get some of those motor unit recruitment patterns that we could only do with indwelling electrodes before. So that's where the, the future of some of this research is. And that's very exciting because it allows us to get even more data from that signal.
Yeah, that's amazing. I was not aware that multi-channel means <laughs> hundreds of electrodes. That That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's amazing what the advances that have happened in high-density EMG. They started with linear arrays where you'd have rows of eight channels, maybe 16 channels, and now you can get these grids and you can, some researchers make their own custom grids, some buy off-the-shelf ones. But you can see when you think about the human body, every muscle is slightly different in shape and size. So the idea that you can get these grids to fit appropriately really has changed the way we're approaching some of this research. That's cool. So say we did it all right and we got our noisy data from putting on our electrodes on the skin over the muscle. What are some common processing steps after that before we really tell someone what we found? Well, you have to get the signal into some kind of usable format, right? When it comes out, it looks like a bunch of noise. What are you going to do with that? How on earth are you going to compare it between people, let alone between muscles or condition and training? So there's all kinds of different techniques. Again, the signal is quite small, so it's really important to use amplifiers. In some cases, you might use two sets of amplifiers, so pre-amplification and then amplification. Um, you can use filters to remove the noise so the signal is cleaner and you can see what's actually happening. And then once you have that, What do you do with this? You've got this signal. How do you actually get information out of it? There's a couple of different techniques that are used to examine the signal. There are what we call time domain analysis techniques and then frequency domain analysis techniques, as well as combined techniques to look at different features. So if we look at time domain analysis, that's looking at the time varying signal, and we can look at the amplitude. We can choose a window of data to look at depending on the movement, the muscle, the sampling rate at which you're actually collecting your data. So you can pick a, a chunk of data that you want to look at, and you can calculate the amplitude. You can use very common processing techniques in the time domain are things like averaging, which would be producing a mean of several trials of performance, the same kind of activity, and then plotting the average of those points to try to reduce the variability. Smoothing is often referred to to try to remove the bumps out of the signal where you average enough times that you eliminate any of those weird random fluctuations you might get. You can use techniques to look at amplitudes such as integration. So taking the total amount of muscle activity that happens in any particular time window and then representing that by an area under the curve. You can use rectification where you take the portion of the signal that's below the zero point, the negative electrical potential, and make that positive, and then use that to examine the signal. We also use what's called the root mean square voltage, which is considered a measure of, of the electrical power in the signal, and it gives us an instantaneous measure of the power output of the EMG signal. So in that case, it's exactly what the name says. You take your EMG values, you square them, you sum them, average, and finally you take the square root of the product. And then that gets all of these numbers and this varying signal into a format that you can then compare depending on what your particular question is. Other parameters in the time domain analysis that are often used, particularly in clinical studies, are things like timing parameters. So that would be the time to peak feature, so the time from the beginning of your analysis. So for example, at the onset of a muscle contraction to the peak amplitude. Onset and offset would be you know, when the muscle turns on and when the muscle turns off. And those things you can see would be really critical if you're looking at a clinical population where maybe somebody has atypical muscle behavior. So maybe their time to peak is a little bit longer and maybe their muscles are not able to contract for as long. Um, if you have a clinical patient that has a lot of spasticity, you might see muscles that are contracted all the time. 
and they never go quiet because that's just part of their condition. So those timing features can be really helpful. The other type of analysis that we often do are with surface EMG is frequency domain analysis. And that allows us to look at different parameters of the surface EMG signal. When we do a frequency domain analysis, we use an algorithm called the Fourier transform or the fast Fourier transform. And what that does, it's a mathematical algorithm and it decomposes the signal that you have, the time-varying signal, into its various frequency components. And so from there, we can create a spectral representation or in the frequency domain. And there are some signal properties that are not necessarily evident in the time domain representation, but they can be quite useful. Unlike the time-varying signal where you can interpret an amplitude, what the frequency domain analysis has often been used for is to look at things like muscle fatigue. There has been lots of research that has suggested that under certain conditions, when you calculate that frequency spectrum, as muscle fatigue sets in, that entire spectrum will start to shift over to the left. So that's indicative of muscle fatigue setting in, probably prior to somebody necessarily being aware of force decreasing because of muscle fatigue. Now, it, we have to be careful with that interpretation because there's also been lots of studies that have looked at dynamic activity that have not necessarily found that kind of shift. But that's the reason that we look at different types of parameters of the EMG signal. There is some research that has looked at joint analysis of EMG frequency parameters and time domain analysis parameters, particularly in situations such as occupational settings. So as human factors engineers, a lot of the research we do is around ergonomics. So there's been some research that suggested that by looking at changes in both the EMG amplitude and the frequency parameters, and depending on whether they go up or down or vector moves to the left or the right, depending on certain conditions, it can suggest where the fatigue is coming from, and also where the recovery for that fatigue is coming from. So that's some work that was done, again, in the mid-2000s. And the nice thing with that, it allows you to kind of look at the different types of things that could affect somebody developing fatigue, particularly in occupational settings. With what you just talked about, with like these changes that we can look at in, in, in frequency content or like the magnitude of the signal, when thinking about that and going back to something that you briefly mentioned earlier, we would like to be able to estimate muscle forces based on EMG measurements. And you just threw it in there earlier that it, it's not that easy and we can't, that it's not this linear, straightforward relationship. Could you explain again why that is not so easy and what's problematic about um, relating those two? There are probably lots of different published articles that have shown with isometric stationary contractions. You can get a pretty good relationship between the EMG amplitude and force. And it looks, you know, if not perfectly linear, pretty close to it. One thing that happens when you change the angle, when you change the type of contraction and start moving, things get a little bit more complicated. And so I have seen research that has suggested that in certain dynamic tasks, you still see a fairly consistent relationship between amplitude and force. But that one-to-one -one relationship is really hard to identify. Because if you think about it, when you're looking at EMG, you're taking the electrical activity that's produced from a contraction, but we're not necessarily taking all of the other factors that might have contributed to force development. There is the physiological reasons for the force developing with contractile proteins and things that occur during a muscle contraction. But we also know that there are neural adaptations. It could be because the muscle that you're looking at, you're looking at one muscle of a group. 
So for example, if you took the EMG that resulted from, say, the rectus femoris and compared it to the torque produced from the quadriceps, you may get a very close relationship. You also may not. Because if you only recorded from one muscle, you didn't include the other muscles of the quadriceps. And if you look at force measures, those are net forces. If you're using an isokinetic dynamometer, that's a net torque. It's not necessarily going to be a one-to-one relationship. So we always have to be very cautious. And I say that knowing that there's researchers that have probably found a very strong correlation between the two. Um, But I think it's really important to think about what movement are you looking at? Which muscles are you looking at? Are you only recording the muscles that are the prime movers? Are you looking at the antagonist muscles that are stabilizers? Because all of those things are going to impact your final force and torque measurements are going to be. Having said that, there are many, many ways that we use the EMG amplitude as an indicator of force. One interesting part of your work is the application of all this EMG analysis and data to the control of prosthetics. And considering the history and the evolution of prosthetics, how long has EMG been used for prosthetic control? That's a really good question and something that I actually had to think about for a little bit. So one of the things I learned from my master supervisor, Bob Scott, who's now passed away, was the first myoelectric prosthesis that we know of was created by somebody called Reinhold Reiter. And he was a physics student in Germany. And he developed what is believed to be the first myoelectric prosthetic. At that time, it was between 1944 and 48. The transistor had not been invented yet. And so Reinhold Reiter was forced to use vacuum tubes in the electronic system, and he was not able to make the system portable. So instead, he designed a prosthesis that was able to be used at a factory bench powered from the nearest outlet. The interesting thing is that even back in those days, he recognized that there was a need to obtain as much information as possible from the myoelectric signal. So even back then, his system was controlling both opening and closing of an electric hand from a signal, from a physical signal. His work was not published, but it was discovered because his work was briefly described in a report in Germany. It was discovered in the late 1960s. And by then, there were several researchers that were developing prosthetic arms and reinventing them. So when I heard this story, it was from you know, my supervisor and Bob Scott was integral into developing the UNB prosthetic limb in the late 60s. And I always thought it was an interesting story because this individual in the 40s had come up with this idea of an electrical hand. It was not published. There was no internet back then. And it just happened to be in a report. And then all of a sudden, you know, 20 years later, all of these different groups in Europe and North America were starting to develop the first myoelectric prosthesis. So If you asked my previous supervisor, he would probably say that was the first development of a myoelectric controlled prosthetic. If I'm being honest, that's a lot earlier than I expected. Me too. (laughs) So how exactly is EMG, or maybe even in a broader sense, our knowledge of muscle function used to control a prosthetic? To date, and this could change tomorrow (laughs) with all of the advances around the universe, the only biological signal that we use successfully to control an upper limb prosthesis is the muscle signal. And the advantage of surface EMG in those types of environment is it's non-invasive, right? You're not putting needles into anybody. And the output can be used for prosthetic control. So, you know, we know that that amplitude, you have a hard contraction, amplitude's going to go up soft contraction, amplitude is going to go down. The ability to discern between those levels is what's needed in order to control that prosthetic arm. 
The other thing we want to think about is the residual limb, like what is left and what's appropriate for electrode placement and myoelectric control. So where the EMG is not necessarily an exact indication of the force, it's an indirect estimator of the muscle force. And that can be used to then control the, the prosthetic itself. The nice thing is that the physical effort for somebody to operate a prosthetic arm is fairly low because the muscle activity that you need to to move the motors is quite small. You can imagine if you have a prosthetic arm and you have to produce massive contractions to open or close the hand, that's going to get really, really tiring after a while. So it's nice that you're able to actually just do small movements, you know, with appropriate training with an occupational therapist to help the user to kind of learn how to get that perfect spot to open and close and, and create different kinds of movements. Ever since myoelectric prostheses have been designed and you know introduced into the industry there are so many different changes that have occurred um, in terms of functionality one of the things that we talk a lot about is degrees of freedom so whether you need to open close the hand you know if you want to lift something for example if you want to pick up a cup of coffee with your artificial arm you want to be able to lift it bring it to your mouth you know, tip it in, not too much, <laughs> take it out. And then you also want to make sure that nobody um, drops that cup of coffee, right? They have to have the right kind of pressure in order to hold it. So there's all kinds of different changes and modifications and innovations that have happened in terms of the cosmetic appearance of the arm and plastics, the motors, the technology that's used. Oh, many, many prosthetic arms still conventionally use an amplitude parameter to actually control the intensity of the muscle contraction. So either we're using a mean average value or a root mean square value to operate at, at different levels of intensity. And if we think back to some of these processing steps, are some of these procedures built in to the control of those motors? Yes, absolutely. Um, there is a lot of different electronics that are going in in order to ensure that kind of processing can occur in real time so that you don't have a lot of delays as people are trying to use those different kinds of limbs. I think about the computational complexity of performing all of those processing steps in real time uh, compared to how we typically do it in a lab setting. And as of today, how accessible are these types of prosthetics? I imagine they require a very extensive and high level of expertise, as well as there's likely a price tag that's associated with them? That's a really good question. You know, the last time I checked for a traditional myoelectric powered arm, they were upwards of $30,000. Having said that, things have changed in the marketplace considerably with the advent of 3D printing. So there are several companies that are now offering affordable arms because they're much easier to print an arm. Um, it's much more cost effective. There's been changes in terms of the type of technology available, the type of circuitry. So there've been some significant advances. So that price has definitely dropped depending on what you're looking at. If you think about a myoelectric prosthesis, it's the controllers, the motors, all of the electronic guts of that system. And then you have these amazing plastics that are placed over it to mimic human skin, to make them comfortable, all of those types of things. And it's quite a extensive process in order to develop it. If you look at a 3D printed arm, it may not have some of those bells and whistles, but they're functional. And I've been very impressed with some of the different groups across the world that have developed 
these, you know, off the shelf 3D printed arms, several organizations, several research groups across the country and in the US and in Europe have been providing open source plans so you can build your own prosthetic arm. So I think that there's going to be a very big change in terms of accessibility. Price has always been a concern, but I can see in the next few years how that's going to be significantly different than it has traditionally been. In addition to a lot of the EMG work and the prosthetic work, you do a bunch of publications that you're involved in deal with the bilateral strength deficits. And I guess before we get into more of a detailed discussion on this topic, can you first explain how these strength deficits between limbs develop or occur? Another very good question. So yes, my PhD work was actually the study of bilateral limb deficit phenomenon. Why it occurs is very hard to understand. There's a number of different theories as to why this deficit may be present, but it's something that's very, very common. So basically what it is is that you know we all often think two hands are better than one. When it comes to maximal force production, it's been shown by numerous research, myself included, that if you contract maximally with one limb, and then you contract maximally with the other limb, you sum that total, and then you do a contraction with both limbs at the same time maximally. The bilateral, the two-handed contraction, the total force is often less than the sum of the two unilaterals, and significantly less. It's very interesting because there's been some theories from the world of cognitive science that perhaps it's some kind of resource allocation that occurs in the brain. There's some folks that believe it happens more at the neuromuscular junction at the muscle level. But what we've noticed and what I found over the last several years is that it's present in young people and older folks, men, women, trained populations, untrained populations. We don't see as much of a bilateral deficit in athletic populations that do bimanual tests. So for example, power lifters people that have trained over the years to ensure that they're able to maximally contract as much as possible. So there's been all kinds of different models for this phenomenon, different kinds of theories, but the verdict is still out and there's still some discussion as to why it might occur. In terms of what is the impact of it, it could affect bimanual tasks. So when I was studying my PhD, it was the human factors engineering, and we were looking at it more so from a ergonomic perspective. If you have workers that are performing two-handed tasks maximally, how could this phenomenon have an impact? And then we were trying to understand, are there muscle differences? Can you train this particular effect? And we found that with both younger and older adults, if you do targeted training, you can reduce the impact of that deficit, which has an impact in any types of movement or contractions you're doing bimanually compared to unilaterally. When we refer to the deficits, how big of a difference in strength are we talking about here for it to be considered, quote, a deficit? Is there a standard clinical test that's used to assess or evaluate bilateral strength? It's hard to determine, you know, is a 5% change in in force production, is that actually significant? So for me, what I looked at, depending on the population, you know, I kind of thought, okay, about a 10% difference would probably be enough to have an impact in terms of the activities you're able to do. And then what happens in an industrial setting, if you're doing that activity all day, every day for eight hours, 
because you know what is the long-term impact of having that reduction in force output? It's a really good question. The very honest answer is I don't know what the actual, you know, if there's one threshold, but for me, one of the things I try to look at is, okay, what's clinically relevant? What is actually relevant to this decrement and how is it going to impact somebody's life? If you look at an older population, we want to keep folks as active and strong as possible for as long as you can. So in that respect, you know, even 5% improvement with training is going to be significant, but a 2% deficit, is that significant or not? So you have to kind of look at both aspects of it. Is your work in this area recently more focused on the ergonomics context still, or have you broadened into some more clinical or aged population? When I started, it was very much about older populations and older working populations. Because one of the things that we have in Canada is we not only have an aging population, we have an aging population in the trades. So people that are doing things like manual lifting, warehouse types of jobs, things like that, where they would actually be called upon to do these types of things. Over the years, it has started to open up where I've looked at bilateral limb deficit in figure skaters. And we did a study where we looked at swimmers. We looked at the pre-training season and post-training season because we're on a university campus as a university, right? So you have access to some of these athletic populations. And my most recent work was integrating um, EEG with bilateral limb deficit and EMG. So that's some recent work that I did two years ago with a phenomenal young woman who was doing her honors research with me. And so we had folks sitting on a, a leg extension machine. We collected EMG data from their legs. We had an EEG cap on their head and we recorded EEG data at the same time because one of the things that we haven't been able to do some researchers have done this, we haven't in our lab, is to record both the neural data and the muscle data at the same time to see whether or not there's an impact. We had you know, some minor technical difficulties, but we had enough evidence that there is definitely at least a component of neural inhibition that's contributing to that deficit. That's awesome. That sounds like a very ambitious honors <laughs> thesis too. So kudos to her. <laughs> it was. She did a great job. And lastly, you've also studied the effects of training on some of these strength deficits. Are there specific types of training modalities that have been shown to be effective? Most training adaptations of bilateral deficit have been successful if you train in the same manner in which you're testing. So a lot of my research is using isokinetic dynamometry. So I trained my participants using an isokinetic dynamometer. It's harder if you start training in different methods or modalities to see the effect of that change. Going away a bit from the research you do, before you started your PhD, you worked in industry for a while. And we were curious about what typical jobs are that electrical engineers tend to go in and what exactly it is that you did when you had your industry break? I think electrical engineers do all kinds of different jobs. Lots of my colleagues from school work in IT or in power systems. Um, I have several friends that work in the oil and gas field. So there's all kinds of different jobs, communication systems. For me, when I graduated, I ended up working in information technology for several years. So I started to do, I started with a little bit of software development. And then from there, I went to working primarily doing quality assurance and doing quality assurance audits, working with things like ISO 9000 standards and implementing them in different companies. 
so it was very different than what I had expected I would be doing after my master's. When you were doing that, did you always expect that you would return to academia or was it something that developed again over the years in industry and and how was that transition coming back? I think I always knew I would go back to university and I've mentioned him a couple of times but my, my mentor Bob Scott was really influential in in my career and you know I really appreciated him taking me on as a master's student and introducing me to this world of prosthetics. I had no idea about it when I started my undergrad, none whatsoever. And he created that little bug and I remember I would often talk to him when I was working in industry and I got my um, professional license as a professional engineer in the province of New Brunswick and he signed off on my work experience and things like that. And I had some, you know, good experiences in industry and some not so great experiences and Over the years that I was working, he would often say, when are you just going to come back and do another degree? Like, <laughs> this is not what you want to do. And I thought, oh, no, you know, I have a good job. I did. I had a great boss for my last job. I had a lot of autonomy. I enjoyed the people I worked with. But I kind of knew it's not where my heart was. And that it's a hard decision sometimes to make. And, you know, I remember at the time... I continue to be. Um, I was speaking with my husband and I said, you know, I just don't know if this is what I want to do. And I knew that I wanted to do more research. I was able with one of my jobs to do a little bit of adult training and teaching. And I thought, oh, this is something I enjoy as well. You know, it was really my husband, my father that kind of said, we don't think that you're really loving what you're doing and you're doing it. But if you, if you want to go back, You're going to have to like make a decision. And so I did talk to Dr. Scott and I said, what do you think? And he said, yeah, just do it. And so I decided I would apply and I got in and I knew that I wanted to do a PhD that was using that biomedical electrical engineering background, but I knew I wanted to work with people and I wanted to do something human centered. I met um, Jeremy Rickards, who was also one of my supervisors for my PhD, and he introduced me to ergonomics and human factors. I worked with Dr. Phil Parker, who was an electrical engineer, and you know he was instrumental in the late 1960s with the development of the myoelectric control system at UNB. So I met some really good people, and then I just decided to make the plunge and I went back <laughs> and I have to admit it was very challenging the first year I would say there were many times that I wondered if calculus and differential equations were in my short-term memory and would they come back and I was older not a whole lot but I was you know six years older than anybody else in the program so it was it was very challenging but I'm glad I did it because I think that's where I needed to be and I, I'll never forget that when I um was in grad school for my PhD. Bob Scott, he was well retired by then, but he would still come to the university and have a coffee once every couple of weeks. And he and I went to, you know, the coffee room in the in the building and we were chatting and, and I said, oh, I said, I hope this is the right decision. And he just kind of smiled. And he said, oh, I think it is. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> It's a lot harder than I thought it would be. And he said, well, I think you're doing the right thing. And I said, well, I don't think I'm a very good electrical engineer. And I'll never forget because he looked at me and goes, yeah, maybe not, but you're going to be a really good biomedical engineer. And I said, well, thank you. So those kinds of things are really important. Like people that, you know, give you that little kind of shot saying, you know what, you can do this. Okay, there's some stuff that's not so great, but that you can get through it or what helped get through some of those rougher days. And then by the time you realize you're in it, you're almost done. And there's no going back. <laughs> Well, that's great. And and clearly it was the right decision because in the meantime, you became the co-founder of the Human Performance Lab at UNB. 
I would imagine just being a new faculty member on its own would be challenging, but trying to, I think, trying to acquire funding and then you have to come up with a plan for your own lab. But this like big human performance lab that even seems like a step up <laughs> because I would think that maybe you even need this, you know, it's not like just for your own lab. You need to think maybe there will be other researchers coming and it's this bigger vision type thing. So that seems like it would have been very exciting. Can you just talk a bit about that experience? First things first, I didn't do it alone. I was very lucky to be able to work in a faculty with a very good friend, Dr. Vicki Chester, who's a mechanical engineer. And she was doing her PhD when I was doing my PhD. She came from kinesiology and was doing a PhD in mechanical engineering. I came from electrical engineering and was doing an interdisciplinary PhD in kin and engineering. So we did it together and that made it that much better. It was a huge project. Dr. Chester started in the faculty in 2003, and I started in 2004. And in 2006, we decided that we would meet with the university's vice president of research at the time, Dr. Greg Keeley, and the vice president of the academic program, who was Dr. Angelo Belcastro, with the idea of a human movement lab. We were building at UNB the Richard J. Curry Center, which is primarily a building for athletics and campus recreation. And we had an idea that we could create a lab and locate it on the jogging track of the building on the second floor. And we had many, many meetings. We had meetings with Dr. Ed Biden, who's a now retired, but a professor of biomechanics, mechanical engineering. The dean of kinesiology at the time was Dr. Terry Haggerty. And so we came up with a proposal and it was a huge opportunity. There were so many meetings, but you know, at the end of the day, we have this absolutely beautiful, one-of-a-kind human lab located within a 190-meter jogging track. It's the Andrew Marjorie McCain Human Performance Lab. And we built that lab from scratch. And it was overwhelming, exhausting, frustrating, and incredibly rewarding. I don't know if I would ever have had that opportunity before or ever again. And it probably changed the trajectory of both of our careers have, building that lab. We took the next six years. We worked closely with the UNB construction team. We worked with architects out of Toronto. So many subcontractors, I can't even remember all their names right now, regarding the design of the lab. We did all kinds of meetings with design considerations. We had many challenges because we decided to build a lab on a track, a jogging track on the second floor of a building. Dr. Chester is a clinical biomechanist. So we have a 12 camera motion capture system in the lab, six embedded force plates. I have an asokinetic dynamometer in part of the lab, EMG systems. It's very different building a space for athletics and building a space for a high performance lab. So that was just an amazing experience. And we do have a beautiful lab, which is wonderful. And, you know, 10 years later, we still walk into that lab and we still smile and think, wow, this is really cool because it's a really cool lab. If you ever come to New Brunswick, you're more than welcome to come and pay us a visit. And the other piece of that is that when you're designing instructing, we also were key in terms of the fundraising efforts for that lab. So we provided demonstrations, presentations to all kinds of different potential donors. So we met with provincial ministers, federal ministers, private donors, granting agencies, and industrial partners. And it was an amazing experience. It was a crazy couple of years, but it was an amazing experience and one that I'm so grateful for. And I'm so grateful that I was able to do it with, you know, my close friend and my close collaborator. So it was a, a big project, but the output was definitely worth it. 
So to end the episode, we have a fun little segment of rapid fire questions. And for these next five questions, we ask that you try to answer in one sentence or less. All right? Okay. Question number one. What is the first thing or one of the first things that you do when you get to the office in the morning? Look at my to-do list. Look at my calendar. Go into the lab and check on the students. Question two. What is an exciting fact about electricity in its broadest sense? And it's everywhere. I remember reading a paper about electric eels and muscle contractions and how they could record it. And I thought, wow, that is really cool. I share these things with my grad students, but it's a very cool fact that you can actually have electricity in so many different aspects of our daily life. Question number three, for anyone interested in visiting New Brunswick, what should they see or do? Oh, you got to see the ocean. You definitely have to come and walk the ocean floor in Fundy. Make sure you drive through the countryside because while the ocean is beautiful, there are also lots of beautiful countryside in the province. Okay. Question four. If you had the time to learn a new language, what would it be? Oh, Italian. Oh, okay. Question number five. What is your favorite sport to play or watch? They can be different. I like to watch figure skating. My mom and I love to watch figure skating together. I can't skate. And I do like watching the Tour de France. Okay, that concludes our 14th episode with Dr. Yusha Kuriganti. So Dr. Kuriganti, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, we learned a lot. And remember to subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.